Welcome to Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelic psychotherapy and the uneasy fit between a medicalized view of human suffering and the mysterious, mystical world of psychedelic drugs. I'm your co-host, Nathan Gates. And I'm your co-host, Brian Pilecki. We're two therapists and longtime psychedelic advocates who love to discuss all aspects of this fast evolving field. Thanks for keeping it current with us. And thanks for keeping it weird as we dive into today's episode. For a dependable platform for your psychedelic assisted therapy practice or just your regular psychotherapy practice, look no further than Ozmind. We're excited to have Ozmind as one of our new partners at ASOC and as a supporter of this podcast. As the premier platform for this field, Ozmind provides an all in one system with customized charting for ketamine, spravato, and traditional psychotherapy as well as a patient app with over 40 validated rating scales and secure messaging options. By joining Osmind Psychiatry Tomorrow newsletter, you'll also get access to over 10 guides and templates to help start and grow your psychedelic therapy practice. Take your practice to the next level with Osmind. And you can join Osmind today by using our link, osmind.org ASOC. That's O-S-M-I-N-D dot org forward slash A-S-O-C. Altered States of Context. This is episode two of season three, as you may have heard in the, the first episode. We've got uh, some changes around here. Um, we have um, a sponsor and, and some more sponsors uh, in the pike, and we have some interns, and we've upped the production quality a little bit, and so we hope you enjoy that. And today, I have a very special guest on the podcast. <laughs> I'll be interviewing my co-host, Brian, <laughs> who was just in psychedelic science. He just got back from psychedelic science this last week. Uh, he was there and we were going to talk about it. We were just going to talk about his experience there. And um, it was a huge event in the world of psychedelics. And so we thought we'd want to have a conversation about this and turn it out real quick and get it, get it out to you. Um, you know, while people are still in the afterglow from the big conference. So um so let's get started. Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Nate. Good to see you. Good to good to be back after after a pretty crazy week. Um yeah, one th- I guess one thing to say quickly is that I did get to uh hang out in person with some of our new team on the podcast. Uh and so that was kind of a microcosm of what the larger conference was, which was I think a lot about building community. A lot about building networks, building relationships, and making connections. Uh, so it was a a ridiculously large conference. I don't know if you've ever been to like a large conference before. 
like 12,000 people. That's big. Yeah, that's real big. I had never, you know, the, the largest is probably the ones that you and I have gone to, um, ACBS, Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, um, which is maybe a thousand. Uh, mm-hmm. So this was at a convention center in Denver and, you know, 11 stages, um, you know, it was the whole convention center. So, you know, navigating it was was a little uh, a little overwhelming at times. Um, I bet there was a lot to choose from. Oh, there was so much to choose from. I, I always struggle with FOMO, like FOMO. Like when I'm at a mm. conference, it's always like, I kind of like conferences with one track and you just go to it. <laughs> right. Well, because they always have the, the three the three things you're most excited about at a conference are always at the exact same time slot. Yes. Yes. That, that happened for sure. Um, yeah. And so, you know, my overall impression, I, I was joking with somebody yesterday saying like, it, it sort of was like a psychedelic experience. It was uh, very meaningful, very challenging at times. And I don't have any desire to repeat it anytime soon. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you got in. Um, yeah, just when tell me about just take me through it chronologically a little bit. You got in when and what was the you know what was the order of you know events? You know, I'm sure they had like a welcome thing and um, yeah, just tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I got in on Tuesday evening. Uh, the conference had some workshops Monday and Tuesday. I didn't go to them. Uh, I think most people were just going from Wednesday through Friday. And I checked in early on Tuesday evening to get my badge um, and was just immediately overwhelmed by the size of the building. Um, But MAPS was very organized. uh, And, you know, in the beginning, I was a little skeptical. You know, is this going to run on time? Like, are they going to be able to pull this off? Uh, But everything was smooth in the registration and uh, and pretty much throughout the whole conference. So, um, you know, the conference started on Wednesday morning with uh, there were a couple of introductory speakers. And then Rick Doblin came out for about an hour and spoke. He had a slideshow and, you know, really set the tone. That was probably the most attended event that I went to. It was in the largest room. And Rick came out in uh, an all white suit. Uh, white pants, white jacket, white tie, white shoes. And, um, you know, he's such a good speaker. He's such a, a, a you know, a really good, uh, good speaker and communicator and kind of told the story of MAPS briefly and, um, you know, kind of talked about where we are in terms of, of MAPS. I'm sorry, MDMA being FDA approved. He estimated that this time next year, we could see FDA approval for MDMA. Um, wow. So it was it was a really nice opening. Um, there were parts of it that, for me personally, were a little, um, I don't know, just a little, you know, fuzzy. Uh, there was a moment when he kind of <clears throat> made a comment. He had a picture of Tim Leary and him together, and he made a comment about like Timothy Leary handing over the torch to him. Um, so there was some some grandiosity to it, but that's Rick, right? That's that's who Rick is, and I don't. Uh, I think that's just part of part of part of who he is. And I think you know some people might might have gotten rubbed off the wrong way by it. Uh, but truly, what what Rick has done, what Maps has done, is remarkable in terms of advancing psychedelics 
into our mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You always want to be careful about being rubbed off the wrong way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, (laughs) You said you wanted to be more casual today, so I'm I'm leaning into that. Um, (laughs) So the uh, what give what presentations were um, particular highlights for you where you feel like like just as far as like the information where you learned uh sort of the most useful um the most useful information so i hung out mostly in the science track and the therapy the clinical trials track probably not surprising um where you know there were lots of presentations on the neuroscience on recent clinical trials on um, you know, proposed trials that are coming coming down the line. Um, and, you know, a lot of it was review. A lot of it was things that, you know, I had already been aware of. And, you know, the conference was for more for the public. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, folks like you and I and maybe some of our audience who are really steeped in this, you know, I think... M- some of our experiences for people like that were like, okay, you know, I've, I've heard about this study before, but there were some really cool new things. Uh, like one of them was um, this idea of a social learning window that gets opened after um, MDMA, but also the classical psychedelics where uh, in, you know, in the studies with animal models, the uh, degree of social reinforcement is increased. So they are, you know, the 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 idea is that psychedelics, there's this window afterwards, and it's different potentially for MDMA and psilocybin and LSD, but it creates this window where we are more um, interested in social connect, socializing. And those and that social interactions are just inherently more reinforcing. We derive more pleasure from them. Hmm. And so it's it's social um you said something about social learning yeah so that so I, it, it's social learning is because the um my, my understanding of it is that this window that gets opened is compared to um earlier developmental periods of like adolescence in mice and in humans when you know with kids and adolescents like that that social system is geared up to be to, to be re- reinforcing Right. As adults, that social that that system kind of calms down a bit. And this is you said adolescence. Is it particularly adolescence or is it like the window is like like childhood, perhaps like this? I mean, I'm not sure exactly. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure exactly. But, you know, in our MDMA study that that we're doing at Portland Psychotherapy, we've had these discussions about um, after MDMA, there seems to be this period where people are more interested and get more pleasure from social interactions. So how do we, you know, if, if folks are seeking psychedelic therapy, how do we maximize that? You know, how do we help people make the most of that potential window that's created after a psychedelic experience? Yeah, that's a really interesting, um, that's a really interesting frame, I think, um, and um, way of looking at it. 
uh, it'd be interesting to learn more, would, you know, and find perhaps we can find somebody uh, who's uh, really in uh, involved in this to talk to more at length about it, because I find this to be a, a really fascinating frame to look through, um, you know, especially in light of um, so much of the, uh, well, as a therapist, um, you know, a lot of the work that we do really, I mean, a huge part of it is relational. Um, it's, you know, people who have um, disturbed, you know, relational context have a hard time with, you know, relationships of some sort. Um, and, um, you know, it's interesting to think about the, a, a chance for like an opening for like new learning because un unlearning dysfunctional social patterns is a hell of a thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so imagining that as like a more malleable um, sort of developmental window opening uh, it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. And um, I mean, as again, as a, thera a therapist, the therapeutic um, value of that is uh, tremendous. I mean, that, that just, that's just tremendous. And it, yeah, it kind of fits with the idea of this afterglow phenomena we see with psychedelics where, you know, in that couple of days or week after, you know, people notice some, some differences and as you know, a big proponent of integration work, um, you know, I'm always talking about the importance of integrating. Um, this gives us some nice, you know, if, if this theory holds up, it gives us some nice, you know, um, evidence to suggest that, yeah, it is really important how we maybe approach those days or, or, or even a week or two after a psychedelic experience. For sure. It makes me think about, you know, like the, the, attachment theory and whatnot as well and you know what you know and how how you could look at this through through that lens yeah um, yeah like really early childhood attachment issues things like that like what if there was an opportunity to 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 form like uh reform attachment styles yeah yeah that there's some sort of like corrective experience that can happen with psychedelics um which I think anecdotally seems to be like you hear about that sort of thing all yeah. the time, um, talking to people who have had experiences like that, where they 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 shift the way they relate to people in a pretty fundamental way. Like they, they you know they have like this this insight into the way they you know hold themselves apart and allow themselves to you know to connect more and like you like you said to have just a, a, a much a, a much greater interest in that you know. So that's um, that's really fascinating, really really neat. I think it also points to the to the to the to the uh, you know the, the role of group psychedelic psychotherapy. Absolutely, yes. You know, there's a couple of studies that have been done on this so far, but not much. There's there's a couple being done now, and so I think that you know not just for cost savings reasons because they do save some money and save some resources, uh, which is good. We need that um, to increase accessibility, right? But also to because there is that benefit of um, working through attachment stuff or, you know, developing connections with people, um, learning how other people see us, you know, experiencing how other, other people see us um, in, in those sort of sharing circles that, that can often happen after psychedelic experiences. So I'm a big fan of group work, and I, I definitely see that as uh, a large branch of where we're going to be in the next, you know, five or 10 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and those things seem to uh, 
very naturally fit together. And yeah, we had a, you know, an interview last year. Uh, we talked about, um, talked about groups specifically, and, you know, we've been kind of on that for a while, you know, both of us being really bullish on, on groups of all kinds, really, you know, uh, you know, from a therapy group to informal groups to just, you know, community groups, being able to do this amongst other people seems um, really important and fits well with what you're, with what you're saying. It'll be interesting to follow that research and it would be fun to talk to somebody who is more involved in that because I think there's, that's a really interesting frame to look at this through. What other uh, presentations or um, inf informative type presentations jumped out at you? Well, I went to several talks about the neuroscience, you know, Robin Carhart Harris, David Nutt. Um, you know, that was a, that was a cool piece of this was just seeing all the the celebrities, you know, the people's whose paper you've read or you've heard about, you know, Stan Grav was there, Roland Griffiths, like a lot of a lot of people that, you know, are are really elders and leaders in the community. Um but the, and the neuroscience was interesting. I'm not a huge neuroscience guy. Like that's not my area of expertise. Um, but what was interesting that was that there, you know, there wasn't a consensus. That that was my read on it. Going to multiple different talks, they all had kind of slightly different ways of uh, interpreting the data. They all used slightly different data collection methods for um, investigating the effects of psychedelics. So. Uh, you know, I think the idea that psychedelics increase neuroplasticity is just so it's too simple. Mm -hmm. right? Everything increases neuroplasticity, like trauma increases neuroplasticity, taking right. taking an antidepressant increases neuroplasticity. So, uh, you know, I think we're at the point now where we're starting to refine some of the neuroscience and get beyond some of the more initial theories that, you know, I think there's something to be said about um, you know, different parts of the brain um, interacting with each other in novel ways. Um, uh, so, you know, I, my that was my take on it as being a kind of an amateur neuroscientist that, you know, we're still still very early in the overall, you know, grand scheme of things and understanding what psychedelics do in the brain. Yeah. Yeah, that seems that seems right. I mean, I think we're still in our infancy and in understanding anything about the brain, really. Um, so, of course, you know, that would be the case with psychedelics as well. Um, but yeah, I think I've expressed before. I mean, I'm, it's fine. I'm not I don't want to offend any uh, neuroscientists or neuroscience aficionados, but, I, you know, it's it's hard for me to care much about that because it just it it, it all seems, you know, as again, my my perspective is so informed as being a psychotherapist. It just all seems so. It's not very practical knowledge as far as I'm concerned, right? Like maybe at some point they're going to create a grand theory of how it all works and um, and good for them. In the meantime, you know, I'm I'm really just interested in helping people live and learn uh, how to live differently. And I feel like we have a lot of tools, and actually, I feel like there's a lot of ways to learn how to use psychedelic tools that you can invest resources a lot more effectively uh, that don't involve sort of uh, laundering it through brain science. But, you know, that's my sort of brain science meh take. Um, I just don't find it that useful or interesting personally. I think you can, and it's okay. You know, I think uh, 
a lot of times we think like neuroscience is like that's the hard science in in in, in the human you know in the realm of human services like that like in, in the realm of psychology social all that the hard science is neuroscience that's how we really get to know what's actually going on and i think it's perfectly okay for people to not care about that and not find it useful um yeah so if you're one of those people uh i give you permission to ignore neuroscience and if you like it um great it's a fun hobby lots of things are fun and interesting to learn about that don't actually pertain to how you live your life at all the one of the things that i found as a you know as an act person you know acceptance and commitment therapy uh, is really a model of what we call psychological flexibility mm-hmm. and it was it was it was kind of comical almost that how many of these neuroscience talks like landed on basically psychological flexibility as a central mechanism, though they didn't call it that exactly. They used other words like, you know, um, pliability or fluidity, or there was another word I can't remember right now that Carhartt Harris used. And, uh, you know, I was just like kind of thinking like that's, yes, psychological flexibility that, you know, it, it seems to keep showing up even for folks who aren't coming from that as their like, base theoretical orientation right you know because even if we get below it like you know and like that's what we prefer you know um or or should say that's what we've uh studied read about practiced learned about act psychological flexibility and it's great but but even that is still describing you know something else i think i mean really you're just talking about adapt adaptivity and you know adaptability i should say uh and sensitivity to context and the ability to learn you know, mm-hmm. I think so you can even go down below the 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 brand name of psychological flexibility if you want to and just get to really basic human um, like in any circumstance, you know, your behavior needs to match, you yeah. know, what's, you know, your behavior needs to match what's required and, and reflect what's important. Um, and, uh, the, you know, I think a lot of different systems are going to describe that in a lot of different ways. Um, I think ACT does a nice job of just focusing on what it is and not bring in stuff that is unimportant or doesn't really matter um which is sort of what i was getting at with the neuroscience it's fine and maybe someday they'll have i mean it's good basic research and someday they'll have this you know breakthrough and like this really uh new and useful thing but in the meantime i'll leave that to uh leave that to the eggheads (laughs) you know a a lot of what's happening with the neuroscience is is and this was at the conference a lot of there's a lot of drug sponsors. There's a lot of like business talks. You know, there was that angle of things. And, you know, a, a big thing that people, that many companies are are spending a lot of money on and people are researching is this non-psychedelic psychedelic. Yeah. This also space, known as not a psychedelic. <laughs> it's somehow supposed to be a drug that affects the you know the the brain in a in a way that you get all of the healing potential you know all the healing properties of let's say psilocybin but without any of these subjective effects like let's isolate that whatever that that mechanism is and whatever the person's experience is that's sort of a side effect let's see if we can like wash that out um yeah this is very brave new world if you ask me yes I mean, yes. this is really, I mean, this, that, that, the, the degree to which that um, meshes with a sort of a totalitarian or authoritarian uh, worldview is uh, <laughs> pretty gross. 
pretty gross. I am against the idea on a very fundamental way, because I think it's like, again, it's saying like, you don't need to understand your experience as a human. You don't need to make sense of things. Your experience isn't what's important. We just need to help you control your brain chemistry and control so that you can, you know, uh, function in such a way uh, that we, the experts, Mm -hmm. believe that you should. Um, it's just the most disempowering thing, um, you know, versus, you know, here's an experience here's, 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 here's life at, you know, 180 miles an hour. And here's you, uh, looking at life from a totally different perspective and, 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 and processing what that means and learning about it and integrating that with how you've seen the world up until this point and making sense of it and making sense of it in the context of what you care about and choosing for yourself the meaning you make from it and how you want to live going forward um to me that's that that, that's the only exciting thing about psychedelics i mean not the only exciting thing i mean i want healing and people to feel better but that's the idea of that healing is just simply manipulating your brain so that you feel better is fucking gross it's fucking gross I, you know, what comes up for me around this is, is, is the, is just the, it just feels, I mean, I don't want to disrespect people who are doing this research, but it just feels silly to me. It feels like a waste of time. Why I I can understand some effort being put into a shorter acting psilocybin. I know that's controversial, you know, people Mm -hmm. who, you know, especially who view psilocybin from the perspective of, you know, a plant medicine, a plant teacher. Um, But, you know, I I think one of the, the only argument that I've heard for the non-psychedelic psychedelic that makes sense is that, well, it would decrease cost and it would therefore increase accessibility if you didn't need therapists to sit with people and process their experience. Um, But that feels like that's not... It's amazing to me how you can pair so conveniently decreasing cost with increasing profit. Isn't that amazing? That's a fucking good trick. That is a (laughs) good trick. Like it's like clear these, these companies are, that's not their motive. They're not here to, you know, increase access. They're here to make money. And if, yeah, so that's where, that's where a lot of the money seems to be in, in what's happening now. Yeah. Um, Which again, I mean, that's no surprise. (laughs) um that that's no surprise but um yeah as we say you know in our tagline for the show you know it's important to keep it weird um Mm -hmm. and so this is you know like that's exactly um what this is is trying to take the weird away and i um quite clearly take take umbrage with that notion yes um because because the world is weird and life is weird and people are weird um and if we take the weird out uh we're left with um you know, this sort of bland, um, the, I think of, um, what is it? The, if anybody, um, they just remade the movie of it, which was okay, but um, the A Wrinkle in Time, that's the book I was looking for. The, you know, young adult sort of science fiction book by Madeline Lingle written a few decades ago. Um, and the villain in that is a sort of a, well, it's a 
somewhere out in the universe is it's this brain in a jar um and this brain in the jars you know exerting its influence as a, like a dark cloud over the universe of sameness and just like this uh monotonous uh uniformity you know this very totalitarian and everywhere it goes you know the, the sort of the, the idiosyncrasy and the uniqueness is is removed and it's left this this sort of rhythmic sameness um and i worry i mean i worry about that this is sort of the broader more of a, a social uh commentary really now is you know i i sort of worry about that at this time in our mm-hmm. uh, in, in our in our world i think there's a lot of um uh, a friend of mine calls it you know spreadsheet brain where we tend to just view experience in in the, you know through a spreadsheet and we and we design policy through a spreadsheet and we think about like what makes sense from the logic of machines and from the logic of spreadsheet and from the logic of management of lots of people at scale mm-hmm. versus what it is to be alive which you don't live through a spreadsheet you don't make decisions that way you don't love that way you don't care about people that way that's not how that's not how people work right and so there's a real sort of like shift towards um uh viewing people sort of mechanistically and machine like right um, that i'm really wary of right now and it just you know that sort of line of thinking really trips me into that like it's a spreadsheet brain uh notion of psychedelics right and it yeah i totally am with you about the 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 lack of wonder the lack of uh mystery in in our in most of our day-to-day lives um you know so another another person i saw speak was um justin natoli and he was on some uh panels um related to queering psychedelics so this is what he talks about and he has this queer creation story which what you just shared reminds me of it you know in in his story um from what i can remember the sameness is heteronormativity um, that's our culture, right? And you could kind of link that to capitalism. You can link that to a lot of whatever the the main kind of dominant uh, mentality is and how it is kind of it pr- promotes this like monotype existence, right? And that queer queering is one way to um, bring back the mystery, bring back the wonder, bring back the awe into, uh, you know, into our, our culture and how queer people um, our medicine, because we we help break up that sameness. We help break people out of the boxes that heteronormativity puts us in. Mm. Uh, and that's something that I really resonated with as a queer person. Um, this idea that, you know, it's not just about accepting who I am as being being queer, like accept, like tolerating, like it's okay to be queer. There's nothing wrong with you. Like moving from that more into like, it's a gift to the culture. Like we're, we're like, it's one gift. It's not the only gift, but it's like one way to help us get beyond the, you know, the existing systemic structures that, that kind of try to keep everything flat and keep everything in Excel spreadsheet land. Now, from your point of view and your experience, you know, with this, I'm wondering, like, if, if you can help me on like an experiential level, like the difference for you between like queer and gay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking personally, uh, you know, the I've I've come to use the word queer more recently, only recently. Um, 
you know, for me, I identified as gay. I mean, I still identify as gay. I'm, you know, I'm sexually attracted to other men. Um, but for me, like gay was more uh, along the lines of like, it's okay to be gay, which I sort of always knew and always, it took me a while to really like feel that, feel like it's okay. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm not bad. I'm not a sinner. You know, all the shit that I got from my religion and, you know, heteronormativity and all that. Um, and, and so shifting from like, it's okay to be who I am to like, I have a unique you know, queer people have a unique gift. Like we, there's something special. It's great. It's like awesome. It's not just like neutral. It's like, it, this is, this is wonderful. So queer to me, um, you know, part of the reason why I'm using that word for myself personally is that it feels more celebra celebratory mm -hmm. and it feels different. It feels like it's a, it's a way for me to, to kind of evolve my own identity uh, from an, you know, because I feel like that's per, you know some of my personal work is in that evolution in the last you know five five or so years, right? Is like from a more like gay you know for and this is just for me and this is not for everybody else, but I relate it to the gay is like I'm gay, you know it's okay to be gay. It's but I you know it's not maybe it's not great. There's like a lot of downsides to it. Whereas queer feels more like it's a rainbow. It's like there's beauty to it. There's it shines. It's brilliant. It it has it has something to offer the world. It's not just something to be accepted and tolerated. It's it's enriching. You know, so that that's a uh, expansive. Use the, you can almost use the word like it's an even a more, more like a revolutionary mindset, perhaps. Sure. Yeah. Yeah you know, much more um, oriented towards uh, change. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 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 And I think psychedelics are, 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 you know, Justin, who I was referring to, you know, he talks about psychedelics as queer medicine or psychedelics as queer. Uh, and and they, they sort of function similarly, right? They, they help bring us out of the flatland, as you were talking about. They help us mm -hmm. Uh, get beyond the systemic structures that we just, you know, for most people, we don't even see them because we're just so embedded in them. Mm -hmm. And, and so stepping outside of them and, and then questioning them, um, you know, is, is, is part of the work. So um, there, there were, you know, several talks about um, different, you know, there was, a, I, I think there was a, a great, at Denver, a great effort to include a variety of voices um, it's not for me to say to what degree maps was successful at, at pulling that off. I'm, you know, I don't, I can't speak for, um, other, other groups or other identities, but it didn't seem like they were trying to make an effort to include, um, you know, a plant medicine stage, uh, you know, uh, several, um, neurodivergent talks, um, queer talks, um, you know, they they try. It seemed like they tried to to represent as many different voices as possible. I'm sure some got left out. I'm sure some might have felt tokenized. Uh, I think there were some protests that happened. Um, actually, I was laying in bed uh, Sunday morning, recovering just from all the exhaustion, and I get a text from Nate saying, "What happened?" <laughs> and I I didn't even I was not at the closing ceremonies, and I didn't I wasn't present for these protests that occurred. Mm -hmm. um, so they're online. You could go check out the videos. 
Uh, some people snap some some videos on their phones. Uh, I'm curious, Nate, how did you how did you find out about these closing ceremony protests? Uh, Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, I just saw on stage there was yeah this disruption during you know Doblin's closing uh, speech and um, you know so they made a, a a little bit of a a social media splash. So yeah, that you know, there the I think some of the the points of the protesters were that you know indigenous perspectives, local perspectives are were not given enough of a seat at the table, right? And mm -hmm. I, I think that's there is this tension in the psychedelic community that was referenced by a lot of the different speakers, just kind of about these different parts. And what something I liked that I heard several of these speakers say was like it's okay for us to disagree like we're not supposed to all get along like let's this you know get like let's let go of this utopian vision that we're all you know just uh, all together and all on the same page like we've got some stuff to work out um as a psychedelic community and let's and that's okay let's see if we can like name that and do that um in a way that is respectful and ethical and yeah yeah that's really you know really important you know and as you're as you're talking too it makes me think of okay so this weirdness and uniqueness so i often think about it through the frame of you know how i you know experience that is i'll tie this into just my um experience of uh agriculture since that's something i'm increasingly involved in mm you know and and the and the sort of the, the the spreadsheet thinking of um animal units through feedlots and this and that that to to you know most efficiently um deliver product to to people um you know on the one hand and then on the other hand you know we have like the, this this idea of like precision fermentation and we'll just stop eating meat altogether and we'll produce all our meat in a lab uh, all our um, protein in the lab um, and, and lost in all of these things are, you know, like a person's ability to produce food on land, you know, like in nature, in relationship. And I think that that's the piece of that is often missing, you know, in, in going back to the very beginning and talking about um, the importance of relationship and having, you know, this yeah. potentially uh, window developmental window open into more interest in relationship and i think that there's it'd be interesting to see because i i imagine there would be that that window would extend to the non-human world that would be my strong intuitive sense um and and that relational um you know relating is sort of the antidote to this this sort of spreadsheet brain sort of thing mm -hmm. um i also had the sense too though when we think of just because psychedelics can be such a solvent a conceptual solvent i've often referred to them as um and it makes this this sort of conservative thought come into my head though like if you've ever heard this sort of uh, aphorism of chesterton spence uh, i don't know if i'll get his quote right but the, you know the gk chesterton the catholic writer from you know the like the turn of the like the early 1900s he, he wrote really interestingly about um, capitalism and socialism um, thinking they were both terrible but you know he always said before tearing down a fence you shouldn't tear down a, f a fence before you know the purpose why the fence was there right you know and so sometimes i think of that with psychedelics because it's so wide-ranging and so like corrosive to 
uh, I don't mean corrosive in a bad way. I just mean like in this in this solvent type of way to sort of uh, norms to you know like um, traditions to things like that. And you know, and, and I think there's a there's there's sort of a a balance to be had. I mean, if we destroy all all norms and traditions on the one hand, like where does that leave us? You know, on the other hand, if there's ones that are oppressive, we need to evaluate those. But it it seems like a a little overly simple to just view it as this good thing to just um completely which i think that was you see that right like if you go back to the 1960s i mean that was sort of like where things really just like forget it you know everything we're just going to reinvent society from nothing which you know that that gets to that sort of utopian uh idea that you were talking about and it's like well how do we find some some middle ground here where we're uh you know freeing people from um you know structures of oppression um, but also keeping in enough structure to hold society together and operate, you know, and operate. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? That was a long ramble. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like you're saying you can't just blow it up without having some plan or having some sense of. Um, well, there's uh, just that there's risk in blowing everything up. Yeah. You know, you see that like even, I mean, I think you can see this just on an individual level in a trip, you know, you blow everything up. That's, um, you know, sometimes that's just massively destabilizing for a person. Um, and that's why, you know, care needs to be taken before and after with integration and, you know, kind of a little bit of sense of like what the intention is and, yeah. um, I guess I'm pointing to the danger both on individual, but a social level of just sort of like mass, um, you know, if you kind of destroy all your concepts of how things should be, there's risk there. Right. Yes. I think that we saw at the conference, you know, the same vision that Timothy Leary had, you know, the same vision that when Steve Hayes was on our podcast, he talked about and, you know, there's so many of us that really hope for a better culture and, and you know, have some hope that psychedelics can be the path. And it's, it's you know, Rick's comment about the torch being handed down from Timothy Leary, and this is kind of like the 60s 2.0, you know, it's reentering the culture. We've learned a lot of lessons, like we're doing it a different way. It's, it's through the science this time, like, you know, it, it's sort of, something that I don't, I think a lot of researchers don't talk about because, because we made that mistake once, right. Mm -hmm. To to have this grandiose vision. And uh, in fact, Roland Griffiths was a speaker. Um, He, um, you know, he did those Johns Hopkins studies with, uh, you know, psilocybin showing that psilocybin elicits mystical experiences. And he, he was really a moving presenter because he was so vulnerable you know, in an act perspective, in an act way, he, uh, you know, he was, he was so open about dying, you know, he has cancer, and uh, he shared, you know, what it's like to face the end of his life, and how he's using um, some of the, you know, the research that he's done to help him around spirituality, and, and all of that. Uh, But he talked about being cautious, and the need to be cautious in how we talk about psychedelics, and how we move forward. So, you know, I think there's there's that tension too, the hope that these can really change things, and then the 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 kind of you know concern about being too grandiose with that vision. Yeah, there's a you know it's a you know it's a very um, 
it's a very fine line. Um, and uh, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to walk it. I, <laughs> um, but I think our culture is, uh, you know, personally, I think we're sleepwalking into a lot of problems. Um, yeah. And I'd rather not continue to do that. Um, yeah. Um, but, um, but you know, I, I don't, and, and I'm not going to, you know, neither of us are going to have, have the answer to that. I think on a, you know, right. if you, if you boil it down, um, I'm interested in fundamentally, I'm interested in how to improve the quality of relationships that I have and that the people around me have, and that the people I work with have with other people with their community and with um you know and with the non-human world right like yeah. to me like I, it's for me I, when i really boil it down to that's what i'm interested in you know whether that saves the world or not i don't know that's mm -hmm. certainly not anything i'm gonna um be a part of on a on a mass scale but if i can improve improve relationships the relationships with people around me the people i work with relationships of people yeah with their communities with the non-human world to me, and to me, that's the that's the real potency of the tool um, that the, the psychedelics can offer is is, is open yeah. people to one another. Um, yeah, and that that that's that's that that's the more most inspiring way of looking at it, I guess, from my point of view. Yeah. You know, you know, another thing that was a takeaway for me from this conference was in regard to ayahuasca and retreat centers in South America. And, you know, what I'm, what I'm going to share about that is in some ways, it's not a new understanding for me. It's something I've understood for a while, but there was something about after hearing some people talk about the situation that it just sort of clicked into place. Um, just kind of how absurd the situation is. So it's kind of like ayahuasca retreat centers are often in places that are pretty poor. And so you could say they they sort of exist in places that are at the edges of modernity, right? They're on the outskirts, they're on the fringes. They're not really benefiting from, you know, full modernity. And they open these retreat centers and who do they cater to? They cater to people who are benefiting most from modernity and 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 are also simultaneously kind of sick from modernity. <laughs> So they open these retreat centers in the pot, you know, in the outskirts. They invite the, you know, the the Westerners to come in and they create these little kind of sanctuaries within their communities where they protect the outsiders from seeing the fullness of the poverty, the history, the violence that's so much a part of their communities, because they know that 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 being exposed to that would interfere with the healing of their guests. So they they kind of create this 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 environment that's kind of sacred and special and is, induces wonder induces awe. It's more likely to you know produce that kind of ayahuasca experience for the Westerners so that they can do their healing. And so it's just kind of like so fucked up, right? That that like yeah. they're 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 healing the people who are benefiting most from the system that they're being fucked by the most, and yet it's still sort of like beneficial to them because they're it's it's a 
source of income for for a lot of folks. You know, the the ayahuasca tourism trade is disruptive in a lot of ways, and in other ways, it's you know, um, it's 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 producing some revenue. And so, I, I'm not an expert in this area. Um, I'd love to have somebody come on and really talk to mm. us about this, who really understands all the economies, but. Um, that just stood out to me from from some of the talks I went regarding uh, ayahuasca. Yeah, that sounds like I mean that that sounds like the you know um, the way yeah the way exploitation sort of uh, operates, doesn't it? Just exactly you know like that. It's um, take and then take and then take some more and leave you know leave a tip after you take. Um, yeah, that's really, yeah, that's, that would be great to talk to somebody who's, you know, more, uh, more involved with that. Um, yeah, that's one of the reasons I'm always sort of uncomfortable with, I, I think that, um, obviously, this is nothing to say about, um, um, there's a ton, uh, in some ways, probably around this stuff, much more advanced um knowledge around these medicines amongst um long-term practitioners and cultures that go deeper mm -hmm. um, you know indigenous cultures and whatnot um at the same time the problems of modernity are pretty unique to modern people who are thoroughly you know um and you know in some ways i feel like <clears throat> trying to <clears throat> rely or trying to almost, you know, asking them to, it, it's both kind of a misunderstanding of the problem and kind of inherently exploitive. Mm -hmm. um, modernity is, uh, yeah, I think psychedelics, hopefully their best offer sort of a, a way of renegotiating with modernity because it's, it's, we're sort of at a dead end with it. I think it's, it's, it's it seems to me like we're at a, a spiritual dead end. And I think that's a that's that, you know, at the conference, that was a something that everyone had in common, or most people had in common. It seemed to me that there was this shared understanding that like our culture's in a crisis right now. And we may kind of not be exactly on the same page about what to do about that or um, but like that seems to be like um, a consensus point, at least within the psychedelic community that people and obviously beyond the psychedelic community, but that people are recognizing that we need we need maybe more drastic action, uh, you know, the counter argument to we should be cautious and go with the science is like the house is burning down. We don't have time for that. I understand that argument as well. Yeah, and and I'm sympathetic to it for sure um but i think it's that's the part where i get it like i'm increasingly uncomfortable and find it dangerous because i think that idea is like hey if we have to do something we have to do something fast the way that always translates to is we have to do it at scale and we have to do it um yeah. everybody has to do it the way that we think everybody needs to do it um right like somebody's going to come up with the idea of what we need to do and then everybody needs to get on. and people don't work that way people are you know cultures um uh communities are all idiosyncratic and different and 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 this idea that we have to do something inherent is that is that everybody has to do something meaning you have to do this the way that we're prescribing and i'm 
really right. wary of that. Um, increasingly wary of that because I see that like is a rising tide right now of more like um, uh, totalitarian fascist attitudes, you know, and I don't mean just on the right. Um, I think that there's a lot of just, yeah, it's coming out of this panicked place and I get it. I get it. I do think that there's urgency, but I think that we're all going to be better off if we take that urgency and apply it to your life and my life and the life of the people around you right now, right now, today, do something with a sense of urgency. Um, but that doesn't involve telling other people how they need to do it. <laughs> it yeah. just involves, you know what I mean? Like it does involve connecting. It does involve building relationships. It involves building um, around you um, better relationships, um, better relationships with the world better relationships with your own ability to survive in the world like you know food and whatnot like these are important things know who grows your food if you're not growing yourself like know who grows it know where because this is how you become resilient right to me because to me that's where my mind goes if, okay we're in a period of chaos how do you become more resilient well you don't become resilient as a nation of you know half a billion people you become resilient as a community um and so I think that's that's where I get wary when I think of this all or nothing. It's like the yeah. super, super conservative, super revolutionary. It's like, whoa, both of those things kind of end in the same place, I think, yeah. um, if you're not careful. But anyway, I, I, I actually need to wrap up here. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, speaking of ending, uh, uh, I didn't go to end, uh, many of the, uh, there were tons of after parties uh, each night. Um, I did get to go see Widespread Panic play at Red Rocks. Uh, Red Rocks is a venue that's been on my bucket list so that was a really nice way for me to end that's awesome that's a great place I, isn't it yeah yeah it was totally amazing yeah great show great great venue so all right well pleasure speaking with you today nate and uh sharon sharing about this this conference and uh there'll be many more yeah thanks thanks for thanks for catching me up it was really great to hear about it and kind of talk about some of the ideas that were bubbling up conferences like that are always so stimulating yeah for sure all right thanks everybody all right i'll talk to you talk to you soon Thanks again for listening to another episode of Altered States of Context. If you haven't already, please sign up for our newsletter by going to alteredstatesofcontext.com. You'll also find information there about where to find us on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Your listening means a lot to us, and we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great trip.